2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning in the first verse. The writer tells us, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his own house. When this was told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in an open field. Shall I go to my house and eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that David made him drunk. And in the evening... Uriah went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, He assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubshab? Did they not, or did not Odoman cast the upper millstone on him from a wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, 
The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David sent to the mess, said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage Joab. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But this thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Blessed are those who hear it and obey it. This story today, this story and the story next week, are important stories in the overall themes of the Bible. One of the most important themes of the Bible is our sinfulness and what God's going to do about our sin problem. This story is important because if you don't understand this story, as important as it is, you won't understand these bigger themes that we see in the whole Bible. You'll miss the significant truth that God is saying here. So you want to pay attention this morning to this sermon, but then you definitely want to be back here next week for part two of this sermon. I thought about doing both of them today, and I thought, no, they won't stay here till one o'clock. All right? So you come back next week for part two of this sermon to see what God's response is to David's sin. Let's break down the story briefly. There are four parts, there are four scenes or movements through this story. The first is the sin. This is the part of the story where David commits adultery with Bathsheba. Kings in that day could do a lot of things. They had special privileges because they were king. And in other countries, the king could take any woman he wanted, even married women. But in Israel, that was not the case. Kings, even though they were kings, even though they had super privileges in some ways, they were still expected to obey the laws of God. The writer also makes it a point to tell us in the story that Bathsheba had just cleansed herself from her monthly impurity. And that's an important part of the story because that confirms to us that this baby is David's. It's not Uriah's. The first part of the story is the actual sin that David commits. The second part of the story is the cover-up. David tried to get... Bathsheba's husband to go home and sleep with her, and then problem solved. If she turns up pregnant, everybody's going to think that child is his. There's no DNA test that they can run. I'll be home clear. He tries to get Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife, and to us, okay, what's the big deal? The problem was he was trying to involve the husband in his cover-up unwittingly. 
If his plan succeeded, Uriah would have never known that he'd been duped. But what about Uriah's words to David? Uriah says to the king, he said, I don't want to go home and sleep with my wife because that wouldn't be right. My fellow soldiers are out in the field living in tents. I'm not going to go home and sleep in my comfortable bed. Wouldn't be right. What we see in this story is that Uriah is acting honorably. Uriah tells him, I don't want to do this. And so David gets him drunk and tries to get him to do it. David won't take no for an answer. And what we're told in the story is Uriah gets drunk. But he refuses to go home and sleep with his wife. You know what that tells us? That tells us that drunk Uriah is, has a man, more integrity than sober David. That's not usually the case. But this is a man of integrity. David is trying to get him to do something that he does not want to do. Boy, don't we see that today? People who try to manipulate us and get us to do things that we have told them specifically that we don't want to do. The third part of the story, after the sin, after the attempted cover-up, is the second sin. This is where David has Uriah murdered. Because his first cover-up attempt didn't work. So, we'll just get him out of the way. Verse 14 says that in the morning, David came up with this plan. In the morning, after that second night where Uriah refused to go home to sleep with his wife. Are you with me here? He came up with plan B, murder him. And it was the next day that he came up with this. That's how long it took him to try to do just a, what would be seemingly an, an innocent cover-up. To now, let's just kill him. Overnight, he came to that conclusion, that that needed to happen. David concocts this plan... To have Uriah put at the front of the battle at the hottest part of the fight. And then have all the other soldiers pull back quickly and then he'd be exposed and killed. He actually sends the letter telling the general in, par in charge of the troops to do this by the hand of Uriah. Uriah carried his own death sentence unknowingly to the general. Gave it, faithfully delivered the message to the king, and the message was, kill this guy. Joab, the general, has no idea why the king wants this guy dead. But he does what he's told. He has no doubt that the king wants him dead, so he does it. Interestingly, as an aside, we understand why David wanted him killed. It's not right, but we get it. The question is, how many other men was David willing to have killed in the process? You understand, war is a messy thing. It's not a sterile process. 
And the whole thing of rushing the men up to the hottest part of the battle and then pulling back. How did David know somebody else wouldn't be killed too? He didn't. He also didn't care. As long as this one guy gets killed, then if other people get killed, well, that's what happens. Remember when, before David was king, when King Saul was still king, King Saul wanted to get David out of the way? Remember what he kept doing? He kept sending David into battle against the Philistines, hoping the Philistines would kill him. Let them do my dirty work for me. Well, obviously it wasn't successful. And we look at Saul and you dirty dog, you tried to get David killed. What do we see decades later? We see David doing exactly the same thing to one of his trusted fighting men, only he succeeds. The very thing that somebody had tried to do to him, he does to somebody else. This strategy of leaving Uriah out there exposed so that he would be killed was an intentional plan. It didn't just happen. That was the strategy, to hang him out there so he would be killed. What that means is this is not manslaughter. This is first-degree murder. This is premeditated. That was the design from the start to get this guy killed. It's not a crime of passion. First-degree murder. Yet David acts like everybody around him is stupid. He sends his servants to go get Bathsheba and bring her home like they had no idea what he wanted. He tells Joab, after Uriah is killed, he sends the messenger back, you tell Joab, Not to worry about this. You know, people die in battle all the time. Don't let this trouble you. As if Joab, the general, doesn't know he was part of the conspiracy to get this guy killed. It wasn't just the normal fortunes of war. It was intentional. As if Joab is too stupid to remember, I told other guys to pull back quickly so he'd be killed. Maybe he forgot that part. Who knows? The fourth part of the story is what I call the happy ending. After Uriah is killed, his wife Bathsheba mourns properly, we're told. She mourns properly for the husband who was killed by her lover before her lover brings her home and makes her his wife. She gives him, the scripture says, a proper mourning. Yeah, because you wouldn't want to cheat your husband of some good mourning after he's been killed by your lover. Right? You got to do this part of it right. Kind of reminds me of people at funerals today. You ever see these people? They go to the funeral and they're just blubbering all over the place for for the person who's died. As if we don't remember how they treated them when they were alive. As if we don't remember how they talked about them when they were alive. And so she, she gives the proper mourning of her husband. 
And then David marries her, brings her home. So the cute couple can just live happily ever after like nothing happened. David, David brings her home to the palace so they can start working on the nursery. Getting that all remodeled for the new baby that's going to come. Hey, all's well that ends well, right? As we look at this story, we've been asking ourselves week after week what David gets right. As we look at this story and we ask ourselves the question, what did David get right? Very little, if anything. Boy, he started off with a bang. Remember the anointing by Samuel the prophet, defeating uh, Goliath the giant, and then he, he is faithful to Saul, even though Saul wants him killed. But now three weeks in a row, we've seen the sin of David as it comes out. David's not a good guy in this story. And yet, David is a good example for us. What? Believe it or not, David is a good example of what not to do. Sometimes we give examples of what we ought to do, and we're good examples that way. Other times we're good examples because sometimes... The right thing to do is a don't do. Sometimes the right thing to do is a don't do it. Don't do what is wrong. What did David do wrong here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He committed adultery and then he committed murder. We get that. But what else did he do in this story? What did he do wrong that led up to those sins? And that's important for us to pay attention to if we're going to avoid sin in our life. Let's learn from David and what he did wrong. Number one, what did he do wrong? He wasn't where he was supposed to be. Did you see that in verse 1? At the time when kings went off to war, David stayed home. David wasn't where he was expected to be as king. And you understand that had he been off where he was supposed to be at war, he wouldn't be home walking the roof looking at naked women. What do we learn? If we're going to defeat sin in our lives, we need to be where we're supposed to be. Number two. Sadly, we see here a side of David that is absolutely ugly. Uriah refuses to get drunk and go home. He gets drunk, but he doesn't go home with his wife. And we see David trying to manipulate people, trying to to use people to accomplish his purposes. David, at this point, is an ugly person because he doesn't care about people. He doesn't care about Uriah and trying to pass off his kid as if it's Uriah's. He doesn't care about Uriah in terms of getting him killed. He doesn't care about the other soldiers around Uriah who might be killed. The Bible here is a wonderful book because even though David is the king, it doesn't gloss over his sin. Gloss over nothing. If I'd been a king, it'd have been erased. 
right? And you hear people, uh, let me give you an aside here for a second. You hear people today always talk about how the Bible was manipulated by power people to say what they wanted it to say. This is a perfect example of how stupid that idea is. David was a power person who wanted desperately for nobody to know what he had done, but he allows for this to be written down, the story to be kept in their history. That would have been the first place I'd go is, let's erase the tapes, let's erase the records of anything that I've done here. Okay, The Bible is, is a great book because it doesn't gloss over his sin. David is a great man of God. But boy, is he flawed. He has issues. I don't know about you, but I can relate to that, can't you? Amen? He's got some issues here. But notice I said that David is flawed. I didn't say that he's human. You see, we often minimize our sin by, well, I'm only human. As if being human is an excuse to sin. But you understand today, we don't sin because we're human. We sin because we're sinners. Big difference. This this story gives us an opportunity to see how sin works. You see, sin is not usually just an act that we commit. Sin is usually a process. Not always, but most often. Sin is a process that often starts when we leave the door open. David wasn't where he was supposed to be. And that led to a series of chain events. Boom, boom, boom. He left the door open. You see, David's walking up on the roof. Nothing wrong with walking up on the roof. And he sees a woman taking a bath. Again, it happens. There's nothing in the text that tells us that he was up there looking for trouble. He was just up there trying to catch a cool breeze. But then when he sees her, instead of looking away, he allows the temptation to grow stronger and stronger in his heart. He begins to watch her. Why? Because James tells us that we are tempted when we're drawn away by our own evil desires. David was doing this because he wanted to do it. And he was opening the door. And when the door began to open up, he pushed it open even more. Opening himself up to more and more sin. We also see in this story how sin works That sin grows when we make choices to go further. Did you notice in the story what happened? David sends it. Who was that woman? Again, I'm going to give him a little bit of credit. Maybe I shouldn't, but I am. He's the king, and in that day, kings could have multiple wives. He has wives. But if this woman is unmarried, in that day, he could have had another wife. He does the right thing. He sends some messengers. Go get her phone number. I want to call her. I'm going to send her a text message. They go. They ask. They find out who she is. And they come back. And they tell David, oh, that's Bathsheba. 
Oh, and you can see him starting to write down the name, Bathsheba. And then they say what? The wife of Uriah. What? The wife of Uriah. At that point, the proper response is, oh, okay. Enough said. She's off limits. But the door has been opened and he has been pushing. And when he finds out that she's married, his attitude is, so? What's that got to do with anything? Sin continues when we make choices to continue in sin. At that point, he had the perfect opportunity to say, okay, wad up the piece of paper, throw it away, go back to christiansingles.com. Well, Christian married people looking for another wife.com. But he doesn't. What we have now is David sending the people back to her to bring her to him. A clear choice to continue. Notice the intentionality here. David doesn't just walk into his bedroom one night and happen to find a beautiful woman there. He had a beautiful woman in his bedroom because he sent and brought her there. How many times do we convince ourselves, well, I just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time? Yeah, because you looked, you know, you found out when it was going to happen and you made sure you were there when it was going to happen. <laughs> Intentional sin. He made this sin happen by specific choices that he was making to make it happen. Also notice the progression of sin here. When his plan to cover up the pregnancy doesn't work, then he progresses to murder. Sin leads to more sin. We can grow so comfortable with our sin as we continue to sin more and more. Our sin can be on the rise even as we tell ourselves, but I'm doing okay. Notice all the scheming, all the planning that David is doing here. By the time he gets to the point where he says, I got to kill this guy. He actually works out the plan to have Uriah murdered. David works out the plan. He doesn't say to the general, you know what, get him killed. I don't care how, just get him killed. David sends the instructions not just to get him killed, but how to get him killed. That meant David is the one who worked up the plan. Number four, sin grows even more when we begin to involve other people in our sin. Look at how many people got involved in his sin. He sent servants to find out about Bathsheba. He sent servants to go get her after he knows she's married. 
David involves Joab, the general, in his plan to get Uriah killed. And that's the way sin works. As our sin continues, more and more people get drugged into our sin with us. David even goes as far as to get Uriah involved in his sin. He carries his own death sentence. Sin may start out to be a private matter, but it doesn't stay that way. Other people get drawn into our sin, some unwillingly, some willingly. That's how sin works. Number five, sin begins to get out of control when we start committing sins to cover up past sins. It's bad enough what he did. It's bad enough what he tried to do but didn't work. But now he's in this vicious cycle of committing sins to cover up past sins. You ever been there? We begin to try to cover up previous sins by committing new sins, convincing ourselves that we need to commit the new sin to cover up the past sin. Convincing ourselves that the right thing to do is the wrong thing. Because it's better if I sin and cover up the previous sin than have my sin exposed. We go as far as to tell ourselves, I need to sin to cover up for my previous sin. And at its worst, we actually convince ourselves that God wants us to sin to cover up our previous sin. Not that God's just okay with it, but God wants us to do it. In Hebrews 3.13, we are told about the deceitfulness of sin. Sin pulls us in more and more into its deceit until ultimately we get caught in that deceit ourselves. We get caught into the deceit that we don't even see how bad the sin is. David has an innocent man murdered. That's pretty bad to cover up his previous sin of adultery, which is also pretty bad. That's how sin works. But having seen how sin works now, what are some of the lessons for us today? Hey, there's no point in unpacking this story if we're not going to sit down and say, okay, how does this apply to me? Right? So what do we learn in this story? Proverbs tells us, Proverbs tells us that a wise person learns from his own experiences and from the experiences of other people. So if we're wise, we will learn from what David does here. So what do we learn from watching David? We learn that no one is immune to sin. All of us are tempted. Sin and temptation are common to humanity. David is a warrior. He's a courageous man of God. He went up against a giant and says, you know what? Me and God are going to take you down. And he does. He's a courageous man of God, and yet he's tempted and he falls into sin. Sin is a problem for all of us. No one is immune to sin and temptation. And even people that we see as very strong 
can be weak when it comes to sin. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul tells us that no temptation has overtaken us, which is not common to man. We all struggle with temptation. But God is faithful, and he will not let us be tempted beyond what we're able and will give us a way of escape. In this story, we also learn that sin is not just some hypothetical, some academic problem. It's a real problem. We often look at the rules as, oh, those are just rules. No, these are God's rules that God has made for a reason. Sin is not just some academic problem. It is a real problem in our lives. Sin leads to death, both physical death and spiritual death. Sin is serious. It's not a hypothetical problem. Number three, we learn in this story that the door to sin and temptation needs to be closed. Yeah, I get it. Sometimes that door opens up. Satan does tempt us by opening the door. Shut the door! You ever walked into your your living room or whatever, you look over and the front door's open, you're like, I don't remember opening that thing. So, you know, I don't know how it got open, so I guess I'll just leave it open. No, you walk over and you shut the door. How many of us, we see the door of sin and temptation opened up and, yeah, that door really ought not to be open. Yeah, that door really, 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 really shouldn't be open. Right? And we leave it open. Shut the door. Shut the door before you go through it. Here's the problem. The longer you leave that door open, the more chances that you're going to walk through it. Where can you see some open doors to sin in your life today? Things that you have... This is not a a door that you just happened to find open. This is a door that you walked over and opened it up. Where can you see that in your life today? The reason we leave these doors to temptation open is because we want to do the sin. And that door is standing in my way, so I open it up. If you want to avoid sin in your life, you've got to close the doors. And by the way, don't expect other people to close the doors to sin in your life. That's your job. Because I know from experience, when I run around and close the door for other people, you know what you dirty dogs do? You go open them up again. I have gone and locked the door, and people come behind me, unlock it. I, I don't know what happened. Yeah, you do. You unlock the door after I locked it. I've gone around in people's lives and I've nailed the door shut. And they'll get the hammer out and pull the nails out. Because if you want to go through a door to sin, you're going to do it. You'll climb out a window if you have to. Right? Don't expect other people to close the door to sin in your life. Number four. One of those doors of temptation is the door of success. Look at David's life. Look in the previous chapters, particularly chapters 8 and chapters 10. David has a number of military victories in his life. And his sin with Bathsheba comes on the heel of those successes. And one of the ways that Satan gets into our life is when good things start happening. When we start seeing success, the door opens up and Satan says, I'm here. 
And in our pride, in our arrogance, because we're doing so well, we think we can handle it. Success is a problem we've got to watch out for. Moral failures don't have to follow success, but they often do. Number five, eventually David gets caught up in the deceitfulness of his own sin. See, David puts his sin behind him. When he brings Mrs. David home, she's his wife, what's he thinking? Dodge the bullet there, right? Your eye is out of the picture. Nobody knows. This sin is effectively covered up. He thinks he's home free. David thought that he had cleaned up this mess like ServPro. You know what ServPro is? It's that company that comes in and cleans up your house after a flood, after a fire. You know what ServPro's motto is? Anybody? Like it never happened. They come in and they clean up the mess like it never happened. Boy, David is there and you can just see him grinning from ear to ear. Boy, I've got this thing covered up like it never happened. Nobody knows. David gets caught up in the deceit of his own sin. He doesn't want to deal with his sin on a spiritual level. He just wants to clean up the mess. He wants to clean up the mess so that nobody knows what he's done. Like nobody could have figured it out. Right? The ultimate deceit of sin is when we start to believe that the cover-up is the most important thing that we need to do. That becomes our central focus. Not dealing with our sin, but covering up our sin. Now let's close with a finer point, just for a minute. Don't check out on me. At the end of the passage, the writer uses the word displeased twice in our text. Let me tell you both times. The first time was when David sent the messenger back to Joab to let, you know, he said, Uriah is dead, but don't let this thing displease you because, hey, people die in battle all the time. Don't let it upset you. Don't be displeased. As if Joab doesn't remember he was part of the plot to kill an innocent man. He had nothing to be displeased about there, right? But then, in verse 27, the last verse in this chapter, it says, David took her home to be with his wife. And then that big word, but. But this thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David has killed Uriah to get him out of the picture. Verse 27 says that David marries Bathsheba. In other words, he's cleaned up his sin. But God is still displeased. David tries to cover his tracks, but he forgot about God. In fact, David is more concerned that Joab might be displeased than God's being displeased. That's a problem. 
But ultimately, that's our biggest problem with sin. Not how it hurts us or how it hurts other people. Our biggest problem with sin is how it displeases God. And that's where we've lost the point today, people. At the height of the conspiracy, David thought his biggest problem was to clean up this mess so nobody would find out about it. Yeah, like God doesn't already know. He wasn't even thinking about this on the God level. Because sin gets us to focus more and more on the here and now and not to even think about the God stuff. We often encourage people to lay down their sin because of how it's hurting them. Or we try to encourage people to lay down their sin because of how it's hurting other people. But rarely will we look at people right in the eye and say, you know what? You need to stop doing it because God says it's wrong. Does our sin hurt our, us? Yes, it does. Does our sin hurt other people? Of course it does. But the point is, it displeases God. And that's a problem. Our biggest problem with sin is that someday we're going to face a holy God who's going to hold us accountable for our sin. And all of our cover-up efforts will not work because God sees everything. And so this is the question. It all comes down to this. It all comes down to this. God sees what we do. And God is displeased with our sin. And here's the question. Do you care? Do you care that God is displeased with your sin? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I care, I care. Really? As long as we keep doing what we're doing, what we're doing is saying, God, I don't care. I know it's wrong. Please. There's ten commandments. David broke two of them. That's like 20% of them. You don't think David knew the ten commandments? He did. David broke them anyway. We say, yes, I care what God wants. I don't want to displease God, even as we continue to do the things that displease God. Does it matter to us? And the fact that we continue in our sin shows it doesn't matter. We want our sin more than we care about displeasing God. God. 